Hey everyone, welcome to the Extent Podcast. Today I am here with two people that I've had the chance to meet once in person. They are very active in the ukulele world, but uh, for me, they have a background in music education and they're from my home state of Wisconsin, which uh, makes me feel uh, particularly connected to them. So with me today are Nicole and Aaron Keim. And Nicole and Aaron, would you like to introduce yourselves and kind of what you do today? Um, yeah, we live in Hood River, Oregon. And um, we build musical instruments under the name Bean Sprout. That's where we're mainly busy right now. Um, and then also we play uh, folk music together and we teach um, music uh, in person at camps and festivals. And we also write instructional books and make the YouTube videos that go with them. And then um, we play uh, in uh, local musical groups. And then Nicole teaches locally as well. And uh, then we make all kinds of folk art and uh, hang out with our nine-year-old son. And how often do you, does your group perform, like, in terms of performances? I know you have some CDs that are available and recordings. Um, are those available, like, Apple Music and so forth, too, in all those places? Yeah, the, the name of our group together is called The Quiet American. And uh, we have four or five CDs, and it's all over all the stuff. And you can buy them off our websites, of course. Um, since COVID, that really stopped our traveling. And so we have hardly ever played music together uh, since then. And what's been interesting is since COVID with Zoom and traveling and a lot less, we basically play three songs together. And that's all you do at a uke fest, right? <laughs> like we show up. So we hardly play music together anymore, really, compared to years past. Um, and uh, but that's OK. It's just a shift in what we do. Um, Doesn't mean that will be that way forever. It no. Just, yeah. Things kind of flip flopped with COVID where um, before it, travel was our our thing that we did from what March through November, at least once a month, traveled to different places, and then COVID hit, and then Aaron's instrument building really uh, took uh, over. Took yeah. over, yeah. and so we're just kind of feeling out how to get back into yeah. the performing together. Um, we do one event every year in uh, outside of portland that's a ukulele uh, camp called manuka ukulele band camp and so we perform at that every year and we're gradually adding more things back into yeah. our schedule i mean part of it too is just a logistics thing is like when we are home here in oregon and we want to play locally if nicole and i want to go and play a concert we have to then hire a babysitter or bring Henry along or something, right? And it just got easier over the years where Nicole has a band she plays in and I have a band I play in. And so like, she's got a rehearsal, I stay home. I've got a gig, she stays home. And it's just been easier to like run our family that way a little bit. Um, but before, up till COVID, until Henry was five or six, I mean, Henry just came along and we just crossed our fingers for childcare <laughs> all the time. And that was great, but now he's school age and you know, we'd rather just, uh, stay home so we can have normal public school training for him. Now, you guys, um, you met in college mm -hmm. at UW-Whitewater, one of the UW system schools, uh, University of Wisconsin. You're both Wisconsin natives. Um, what was school music like for you growing up, both of you? Like, what, what were your experiences with school music? Uh, we had excellent music education programs in Wisconsin. I feel like um, we were very lucky. I was involved. My sister and I were both involved in band and choir, elementary school, middle school, high school. Um, great training. And the reason that I wanted to become a music educator was 
really in high school, my, uh, my choral teacher just really inspired me. And she gave me a lot of leadership opportunities, section leaders and leading rehearsals and conducting lessons and things um, that uh, made me want to go to school for music. And she actually was an alumni of UW-Whitewater. So that was one of the two places that I auditioned and and then ended up attending. So I feel like- um, You had had private lessons. Yeah, like private piano lessons and private voice lessons, middle school through high school, college. Um, And I feel like our education, at least for me, in high school is very comprehensive. I feel like our band and um, choral teachers were, they attended music conference. They were always bringing in new ideas. We had portfolios. I feel like they uh, just were just on it, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, And I grew up in Janesville and I did uh, chorus and band all the way through. And I did all the like marching band, jazz band, all the extra stuff. And we both, oh, I did musical theater and Nicole did too. They had theater programs at her school. Did all the musical theater stuff, um, sang in the choir, took all the classes, you know, um, did all the band and choir stuff we could, right? And just did everything. Um, And yeah, I think we didn't know it at the time, but like in the 90s in Wisconsin, I think we had a bit of a golden age for uh, music education and education in general. Like we saw our teachers as people that we wanted to be like and we saw what their career path as like a oh, solid way to make a living and that's why all of us went to college is because we saw how what those people's careers were like um you know not knowing how much public education was going to change over over when we got out of school but um yeah I mean, we just had great music teachers who got, gave us lots of opportunity and um we just did everything we could so what instruments did you play like in band in high school both of you I grew up playing the clarinet. Yeah, and I started on clarinet and then I switched to the French horn. So I went to, when I went to college to be a band teacher, a horn was my main instrument. Now I'm going to ask you some other questions. Did you did you play recorder in elementary school? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Did you play orf instruments when you were no. growing up? No. That was not a thing yet in Wisconsin. People didn't really do orf, but Well, maybe it was a thing, but not in our yeah. the schools school. that we went yeah. to. Yeah, it depends on the school. Problem. I'm trying to think of some of those other elementary, but where I'm getting to is, was there any sign of an ukulele in your elementary or high school or middle school experience? Not yeah. a chance. Nope. When we found it in college, people thought it was, it was, it was even weird in the late nineties, early two thousands still like, you know, it was just the beginning of that stuff, but yeah. we had recorder and everything. And um, when I was in college, I actually played in, in an early music ensemble. So I, I had a couple of nerdy recorder years actually where I really like playing recorder. That's pretty cool. After college, when I uh, got my first teaching job or my second teaching job, I um, was blessed to have a huge classroom with lots of parent support and and a uh, huge budget, which was you know kind of unheard of. And so I decided to get a classroom set of ukuleles, and I was really excited. And we went back. To, this is when we were living in Colorado. We went back to Wisconsin for a wedding of our our two friends, and um, the woman who did my um, practica, practicum when I was in uh, college, very well known music educator in Wisconsin, I was telling her at the reception, I was like, "Oh, I'm so excited that we're getting ukuleles," and she she was like, 
you need to be getting guitars. Ukulele, no one has an ukulele. Like this was back in what, 2005. Yeah. Uh, she's like, guitars is what people are going to relate to. And I, I just kind of was taking it. I was like, oh, okay. Well, I was really excited about it. And I, I did. I got ukuleles anyways. So that was just kind of interesting. She, well, she's like, kind of a, the radar. like a whole generation earlier, right? Like yeah. she just hadn't been exposed to it. I remember right about that same time, James Hill was a guest on a um, music education in Canada. Uh, radio program, like a national program. And it was like a live debate argument between James and a woman of an older generation about recorder versus ukulele. It was super cringy because like James was like, oh yeah, everybody should play you because like you can sing and play and we can all learn chords and then we can all learn the pop music the kids like, but we can play classical music, we can do everything. And when you play the recorder, all you can do is just play the tune. It's better to be able to play the tune and play chords and sing, you know? And the woman's like, yes, but can you do this? And then she played My Heart Will Go On on the recorder. And that was like her argument was like, My Heart Will Go On on the recorder is infinitely better than all the things James can think of. And I was like, I, I don't know, man. I, I think James is right. <laughs> I wonder if he's got that anywhere like on recording, because that'd be amazing to listen to. It, yeah. it will not age well. You know what I mean? Like. <laughs> Now, you, you said you actually found ukulele in college. Did you really find it in college? Um, well, I got our first one in college, like a toy from a from somewhere. I got like a toy from somewhere and I wanted to make it work and it wasn't going to work. But that that's when I in college is when I saw a little rev play for the first time. So I played, you know, string bass in this string band that we played bluegrass and old time music and folk. And so those guys knew about little rev. So we like drove to Milwaukee to watch little rev play. And he played an ukulele at that concert. And I was like, oh, this thing is cool. I want to get one. And so he's the first time I ever heard one live, ever. This is like 2001, maybe. Um, and so I got one then, but it was just it was just trash. Like, it was never going to work. But I really wanted to learn it. And then it didn't really kick in as a real thing till we went to graduate school in Colorado. And then... You went to graduate school. We moved to Colorado and I went to graduate school. Yeah. And I found one in Colorado. And that's when I really got into it. What was your graduate program in? I did my master's in musicology, music history, and I studied um, uh, American string band music from the Great Depression. Um, so, uh, and like my two, both my projects actually ended up bumping up against Hawaiian music as well, because I, I did my one project about um, the spread of this, of the Hawaiian or steel guitar during the Great Depression via mail order course. So people would send away for like music sheet instructions through the mail and you'd do these instructional programs that came in the mail to learn the Hawaiian guitar. And it was during like one of these phases of Hawaiian music popularity. Um, and so, uh, you know, I, one of the ways that the Hawaiian guitar made its way into all the other kinds of American music, like the dobro and bluegrass or the pedal steel guitar and country music or those things, it made it there because little kids started, wanted to play Hawaiian music, but then they ended up playing their own music in their local area, right? So anyway, uh, while I was doing my master's degree and I was learning to play the ukulele, some of my research into historical music rubbed up against Hawaiian music at that time, which was, um, I didn't, which I didn't plan for, it just kind of happened, so. So then Nicole, you're teaching actively. Aaron, you're considering, you're going into higher education with a goal to become what, do you think at that point? Oh, I, I guess at that time, I thought I was going to be a college professor, right? Like, I thought, well, teaching band is cool, but I want to be an academic. And so I got 
we, I went to school for the master's degree. Nicole was teaching full time while I was doing the master's degree. But then when I started the, my master's degree, I also joined the band. And so like over time, it felt like I didn't want to do six more years to get a PhD to try to get an academic job because I was playing music and having more fun playing music. And then it kind of turned out that like the music that I was studying was a vernacular music. And so it was like, oh, well, I don't need to be in an academic classroom reading books about this. Like I need to go to the Bluegrass Festival and just go play music. <laughs> so I kind of gave up on an ac a traditional academic life at that time because I just didn't want to pay for six more years of a PhD program or something. and kind of found that like I was learning what I wanted to learn just by being in a band. Um, so, uh, but you know, everything we've done since then, my research mind and my academic mind and my training, you know, it guides all the things we do. And it's now coming out even in our woodworking um, because of the way I approach history and tools and methods and wood and tradition and cultural history and whatever, it's inside what we do. So you at this point are playing bass. Did both of you play guitar prior to that too at all? I took, I had to take guitar lessons in college and that was kind of where that ended for me. <laughs> I guess I did play a little oh, bit of cool. guitar yeah. at school to accompany kids and things. Yeah. But I, but I soon after Aaron really got going with his band and I acquired a ukulele that for my classroom and I just found that so much easier to, play for me. I have smaller hands. So um, it just worked better for me in the classroom to teach with and, and tinier and can move around the classroom better. Yeah. And I didn't play guitar before bass. Bass was my first one. But then in graduate school, also, I started to play all the different folk instruments. And there's a lot of years where I played guitar and I traveled with, I, you know, in my band, I played guitar a lot. And um, but I always kind of played a lot of instruments and everybody plays guitar. So I kind of just, even though I did a lot of it and could do it, it just kind of didn't pay off compared to playing the other things. Cause like showing up with a string bass or a banjo or a steel guitar, when there's already eight guitar players, it's kind of better to do something else, you know? Um, so, you know, we do technically still own a six string guitar, but, but none of us play it. Like really. Henry I'll have to pick up that later, right? In oh, terms of well, coming, yeah. <laughs> yeah, Henry's playing electric guitar now he was really into it. And so we built him, we, he and I built one this Christmas and it was really fun. So uh, that's what Henry's interested in is, you know, loud and fast music. So I actually had to go into my son's room and ask him to turn his amp down. <laughs> it's a, a, a milestone, right? So when, when did the building start of ukuleles? Was that in Colorado or did you have yeah. another step before that? Uh, when I was in Colorado, the band I was in got hired to go play at um, the Nova Scotia Ukulele Kaylee in 2005 in Nova Scotia. And so at that festival, three things happened that made my whole career happen. The first is that I met Marianne Brogan and Marianne lives in Portland and she has run music events in the Pacific Northwest for 15 years now. And so Marianne, as a person who always hired me and then as a collaborator and as a patron as well of our artistic life meeting her and starting that relationship was important because that was one of the reasons i moved to the northwest is i knew we had work in the northwest number one number two i met james hill at that event james was uh 17 years old and james was really interested in folk music too so we met each other and started to play and hang out then so i met james at that event 
And third is I met two people who also lived in Colorado, but I didn't know them yet. And that was Heidi and Rob Litke. And Heidi and Rob, um, when we got back to Colorado, I had expressed my interest in wanting to learn how to build musical instruments. And Heidi and Rob were like um, serial entrepreneurs. And they were like, oh yeah, we should start building banjo ukes. How about we run the business and you learn how to build banjo ukes and we'll make a thing. And like, they, that's how it started for me is to have those people like signed on to like run the business and know how to do those things. Um, so that's when, uh, that's when we started the company Beansprout. So Beansprout at first was me and Heidi and Rob and we only built banjo ukes at first. Um, and I wanted to do that because I wanted to play one. And at the time, there was no new manufacturing of banjo ukes at all in the whole world. At, you could go buy an old one and fix it up, but you couldn't buy a new or handmade banjo uke in America. He built these banjo ukes in the basement of our town home, which didn't have a dust collecting system. Right. What are the main tools that you had when you started building? I, not enough. You had a, <laughs> some sort of... Saw. I, I had a bandsaw band and saw. I had a belt sander and a drill. And my dust collector was a shop vac, which is a dumb idea, but I didn't know it at the time. Yeah. Our, so. our uh, washer and dryer were downstairs. And once he started building, I said, okay, I'm not doing laundry down here anymore. It's too dusty. So you're in charge of laundry from now on. Yep. <laughs> now, Nicole, when, when he starts building and starts considering that, you know, as a, as a queer, what do you think as a music educator? I mean, are you all for it? Or are you like, eh, what, what were you like? We actually never unpacked that. Yeah. What did you think about this? <laughs> I mean, maybe in therapy, we've been, yeah. no, just kidding. Um, that time in our lives was just kind of, we were just kind of finding ourselves as people and adults and musicians. We, you know, Within the span of two months, we graduated college, got married, and moved across the country from Wisconsin to Colorado. So um, I think I kind of just felt like I've got my thing. I'm teaching elementary music. Aaron's doing grad school. He's doing his band. The, he tells me he wants to build musical instruments. You were also teaching private lessons yeah, all, that time. all the time. Though. And I just kind of felt like, okay, whatever it takes to make all of this work, you know, um, financially. And for both of us to be happy, I, I wanted him to feel fulfilled. And um, so, yeah, I think I, do you remember it differently? <laughs> um, there may have been some fear, I think, just uh, kind of changing career paths. I mean, I think when I started building, it didn't seem like it was gonna be a lucrative career. I still thought I was still going to play music all the time. Right. Like I didn't know that it would be a thing that we would eventually lean on. Right. Right. Um, yeah. So like it was at that time when I was doing bean sprout, it was like 20% of my life or something. Right. Or 30% of my life um, And music and teaching was the rest. So it just kind of, so I don't know, but I think also, you know, relationships have patterns and some of those patterns are well-worn for good reason. And some are well-worn for bad reason. And maybe you don't know that they're good or bad till later. But one of our patterns is, I'm like, oh, you know what we ought to do? And Nicole's like, what? And I'm like, I think we ought to whatever. And she's like, what? And I was like, yeah, I was reading all about it. And then I just am like, have stayed up all night reading about a thing. And I'm like, we ought to do this. And Nicole's like, okay, what are we going to do? And I'm like, so what we got to do is we got to blah, blah, blah. He's, he's got this grand plan in his head already that's already been dreamed of and drawn up and drafted. And he kind of 
I remember, I remember the conversation. We were kicking a soccer ball outside and you were like, I'm going to build banjo ukes. <laughs> and I was just like, yeah. Okay. Uh, how? <laughs> um, and so that's, yeah, that is kind of a thing that is cyclical in yeah. our lives where I'm immediately kind of frozen into um, what is this going to look like? How are we going to do it? What's it going to cost? All the things. Mm. And he has more of a broad perspective and faith that like, I'm going to do this and it's going to work out and this is how it's going to happen. And yeah. Yeah. I mean, we both are people who write lists and have clipboards, but like, and so sometimes though, like when I tell her my idea, I'm already three sheets deep on the clipboard and she doesn't know it yet. Right? Oh yeah. So it's not like, you're it's, not just a dreamer. Like right, you're like very organized yeah. in what, but your I thoughts. think also we've come to realize over the last few years that like Nicole's has a different detailed, a different set of detailed mind than my detail mind. And so we've worked, come to this place where like, she kind of is my editor for the world. So she quality checks the instruments. She rewrites all my tablature. She um, checks all the emails that get sent out to make sure my writing is right. She edits my articles before they get published. You look at the books. Edit that we the write. books. Yeah. You, she's the one who quality checks and ships all the instruments. I mean, like, so like everything I do flows through Nicole's world on the way out. Um, and, uh, you know, for better or for worse, that's worked pretty well, you know? Um, so I think building instruments was just another one of those things where I was like, we're going to do this. And you're like, okay. And then we did it. And I mean, that's a, a really short way to make a long story. Right. I mean, cause lots of things have happened since then, but yeah. Now, did you have any prior woodworking experience before that happened? <laughs> uh, you're a music teacher, you weren't taking shop class. No, you, I never no, took a you, shop class. Yeah. Um, and my dad didn't have a shop, but I grew up in a, a farming family so like i know i knew what a shop was but to me a shop is like where you work on the tractors and the and you sharpen the lawnmower blades and you might have to cut some wood for a thing you know like a farm duty shop is what i grew up with not fine woodworking i never took a shop class but then um i spent my whole youth in boy scouts and i was a camp counselor and i did ton of wood stuff in boy scouts but more importantly boy scouts just gave me in working at a summer camp just gave me that like natural handiness and confidence of like, oh, you want to make what? I don't know. Let's make that. And like, we just made stuff. Like I didn't own a chisel or a hand plane or a handsaw or a sander. Like I just knew like I was not ready and didn't know it like <laughs> by a long shot. Um, and I just picked up the education kind of like along the way. But I, and also this is kind of like pre YouTube and pre DIY woodworking education. I mean, like the alternative was this. I just paid for graduate school and Heidi was like, oh, you should go to the Red Rocks Community College because you can do a two year guitar building program, which actually would have made the, mo make, made the most sense. But Nicole and I were like, I'm not paying for a two year woodworking program. I just finished a three year master's degree. Like we are done with school money, right? <laughs> you know, <laughs> in hindsight, I should have done what Heidi did and yeah. gone into, and studied with Robbie O'Brien at the community college. And I, it would have changed our career path for sure. All right, so you're you're um, building some ukuleles at, at home, but they're banjo ukuleles. Mm -hmm. um, before I ask the next question, is there a reason why banjo ukuleles never develop metal strings? Oh, I mean, I see them on old ones from time to time, and I think it's because people just put um, metal ones on there. Um, but I think if you think about it, when it comes to a banjo uke, 
its identity is actually more uke than banjo because it's designed for a uke player to pick up and use. So it makes sense to just have the uke strings there because it's what they're used to with their hands. But also with the short scale in the steel strings, um, it really accentuates all the high overtones while the non-steel strings, the uke strings, mellow it all out a little bit. So like a banjo uke with uke strings on it is already like a, a weapon of mass destruction. Like it can be the loudest thing in a county. So putting steel strings on it just doesn't help. <laughs> you know, like I think we spend most of our times trying to tune or to like tame the banjo uke and make it polite, not um, louder. So I think that that's probably why it uses the uke strings instead of the metal ones. As, a, as something I've always wondered, and I, I thought you might have an idea, which that, that makes total sense. So, um, okay, so you're you're building ukuleles at home um, and banjo ukuleles in particular. Um, you're selling a few. By the way, do you still have any of your early works around? Um, I don't have any of the original hundred that I built in Colorado. Um, uh, they're all long gone, but I see them from time to time. Um, customers still play them and have them, and every once in a while, somebody buys one second hand and sends it back to me for a checkup. Um, so they're out there, I think, but I don't have them. I'm kind of always been the kind of person who tends to sell the old things and move on to the next model. Um, I don't really keep a lot of old things around museum style. And part of that has just been because we're kind of working class musician type people. Like we can't afford to keep all the things I make when other people are perfectly happy to buy them. So um, I don't really have any pieces from the original bean sprout era i think there's been a few regrets over the years of things that you've sold and i don't know if that's specifically things yeah. that you've built or just instruments that every once in a while you're like oh man i wish i still had yeah blah 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 yeah i've let a few get away for sure yeah i don't know i mean i just think that for us too like instruments are really important but instruments are tools to do our musical jobs and so um, I kind of only keep the ones around that we're using to make a living with or we really need and kind of don't keep the rest around. So um, He's been known to sell off his own personal instrument at a festival. <laughs> all the He'll time. He'll come home and yeah. be like, well, I have to guess, I guess I have to make myself a new baritone because I just sold mine. So, yeah. yeah. When you see the early work, do you, do you look at it with awe of what you were able to do or do you see things that you would have done differently and look at it that way how do you how do you look at your old work when it comes in once in a while i look at a thing and i'm like oh you did it that works that's good like oh yeah that worked out but mostly i look at it and it looks clumsy to me you know just like the way the curves are or the finish or the fretwork or the you know just all of it it's like i mean it all was good people seem to be happy with them it all worked out <laughs> i have a career but definitely in that first hundred, I think it's just kind of clumsy. So you, you're making these instruments. When do you run into Gordon and Char and start that part of the journey, which seems like it's that next major part? Yeah, um, well, while I was building those and grad school was finishing up, I was traveling with my band a lot. And when we came to the Northwest, we met Gordon and Char at, um, actually we met them first at Denver Uke Fest. And then we just started to see them at other Uke events that we worked at. And so we became friends with them. And then they were the kind of people that invite musicians to stay at their house when you're near them. And they helped us get gigs. And so we got to this point where my band is when we went to the Northwest to play tours, we would stay at their house whenever we could, because it was a free place to stay. And it was really nice. And they were generous. And it was a good like base of operations for going to do stuff. 
So while we would do that, the rest of the band would be sleeping and I would go out to the shop with Gordon and Char and I, I wanted to learn more about building ukuleles. And Gordon and Char um, are the people who started Mayamoe ukuleles. So over a few years, we saw them at festivals and I would visit them in, in their shop. And then we kind of started to collaborate when I visited them in their shop. And then over time, they decided that they wanted me, they, I was going to still build banjo ukes, but they wanted me to build ukuleles for them and with them. So we had like a series of instruments that I built in Colorado, but with the parts that I made in Washington, and I would pack up a whole big suitcase of like of ukulele parts that I milled, take them back to Colorado and I would build them in Colorado, and then they would get shipped to my MOA customers. So that went on, I think it was about a year. You probably don't remember. Um, I think about a year, it was like a long distance collaboration. And that was fun. I learned a ton over that time, but obviously it's not the ideal way to work together in a woodworking business. Um, and we were getting to the point then too, where I wasn't sure that band in Colorado was gonna go much longer. And Nicole was thinking about taking a break from teaching and we were thinking about having a baby. All those yeah. things were like all at the same time. And so again, actually it's just kind of like when we moved the first time, like we in all at the same time, Nicole quit her teaching job. I canceled my band. Um, I bought Beans well, Your band was kind of falling apart. Well, yeah, but <laughs> I could have kept it going if we stayed in Colorado. I right. was not. Yeah, yeah. Um, I bought Beansprout from Heidi and Rob. I signed on with Gordon and Char, and we moved to Oregon. Like, all. And I started making. Uh, oh, then you switched. Felt, to yeah. uh, hair clips and headbands for my, <laughs> for my full-time job when we moved here. So. When I was teaching in Colorado, I did craft shows and things on the weekends and just really felt like, oh, this is really fun. I enjoy making things. And I was getting I was getting kind of burnt out of teaching. I taught for nine years and I bow down to you for teaching as long as you have, because uh, I had the ideal classroom. I had the ideal. I had parent support. Um things got a little interesting with uh, administration changes and stuff. So that, as you know, that's just the way it goes. Um, but yeah, I was just feeling a call towards, I don't know that I can do this for 20 more years. And um, was had just kind of felt that way for maybe a year or two. I think it was after, I think it was after grad school. I went to grad school while I was teaching. I did a summer program at Northwestern. And uh, I think, even though I was inspired by grad school, it just tired me out because <laughs> yeah. I didn't get summer breaks for four years. So yeah, I was just kind of feeling like I was on my way to maybe taking a break. And then Gordon and Char said, you know, it really doesn't make sense for you to be living in Colorado and building for us. So why don't... Well, actually, you know, a little bit backwards. Oh, I do. I, I got to the breaking point of like, this is too hard to do here. And I made up a plan on the clipboard and I called Gordon. I said, Gordon, this is the plan we should do this. And he goes, it's about time you figured it out. <laughs> so oh, he, he knew that we needed to move and live there and, you know, but he was like waiting for us to decide to do it. Yeah. So, I think there had been some conversation back and forth yeah. with them, yeah. you know, I mean, the it years wasn't, prior, yeah. just like, oh, when are you going to move out here? Kind of. Yeah. So we just decided to, yeah, take the leap and have Aaron come out and work full time for them. And then I took a break from teaching. Uh, yeah. And it, but that's also then when you and I started to play music together all the time and travel yes. to the Ukrest circuit. So yeah, I worked for Gordon four days a week, but we were still hitting music and 
writing books and traveling pretty hard. Like yeah. we played a lot of uke fests over those Miyamoto years. Right. Um, yeah. So Nicole, you were you were getting your master. Did you get your master's at Northwestern? Are we talking Northwestern Evanston? Yeah. Time? Okay. Yeah. So what was your master's in? Music education. Okay. Yeah, they had a, uh, they have an excellent program for uh, teachers where it's a six week intensive. So basically, I finished teaching. I had a week to pack up my car and drive the eighteen hours uh, to Illinois and get unpacked, and then it was a um, six week program. And then I had a week to get back before meetings started for school. And it's a four four year program. And then of and course, course during the year we would work on projects and things um, that examples of things that we could take back for the following summer. Yeah. So now you find yourself in Oregon with, and you've you've sort of put bean sprout on the back burner for a little while. And then yeah, what both- officially officially what happened is um bean sprout uh became a, a model at my MOA. Okay. So I continued to make banjo ukes at my MOA while I made the regular ukes too, but they were my MOA banjo ukes. And so there's like 150 or 200 or so banjo ukes out there with the my MOA headstock, and they're from those years there. But then my building, everything was for Gordon and Char. Like I was I I didn't have a my own building, everything I made was for them. Um, that was part of the deal. Um, and so for those years at my MOA, Beansprout as a business was technically not running, but the, the Gordon was smart enough to let me keep the name going as a model so that the name was still in people's brains so that when I went back out of my own, it still existed, uh, which was really cool of him to let us do that. I'm still so amazed that that whole thing worked out um from the outside perspective and i mean i get into ukuleles in 2016 um because long story short as i'm teaching middle school music at the time uh they ended up changing our contract so that we only did two concerts a year so one would be in the december or january part of the year and then the other would be in may see this big gap in the middle of the year so i tried a bunch of things and then around 2015 there were a whole bunch of articles in all the music ed magazines, you know, the former MENC, which is now NAFME, um, talking about ukulele. So I approached my administration, said, can I start with ukuleles? They said, sure, but we won't pay for it. Mm-hmm. And then I approached the district. I live in a pretty large district. The district said, we think it's a great idea, but we won't pay for it. So I fundraised and bought a set of ukuleles. So I was, you know, teaching ukulele for the first time. It had always been a folk instrument growing up. You know, so the two people that I would say that I would know ukulele from are really both Tiny Tim from my era, being 50 years old, and then also Don Ho on the Brady Bunch playing Uh ukulele with the Brady Bunch. I mean, those, I saw it as both a shtick and both as a folk instrument. I never saw it as anything else. And I can still remember around 2009 uh, where I'm teaching high school, you know, and I'm walking down the music area and there's kids playing a ukulele in you know the the general area around the music area and i'm thinking kids playing the ukulele what's going on with this but years later i end up in 2016 teaching it because i thought well let's try this because i tried a bunch of other things that didn't work and the kids loved it there were some failures there were some wins there before i moved it but you're already doing all this stuff with ukulele and it just from the outside at that point learning about my you know as you're starting to learn about ukulele with no idea what's going on 
um, finding out that this is this really revered brand. Um, like people are like, if you have a Maimoy, it is considered better than anything. Um, quite honestly, that was that was the thought, you know, at the time. So, and then learning from the outside that, you know, you just weren't always part of Maimoy from the start, but kind of melded in. Yeah. And the fact that that worked, you know, and again, I don't want you to talk about any like any conflict or anything. I don't want you to talk about that or whatever. But it was amazing to look at from the outside. How does that work? And then when they were ready to pull apart, you know, and 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 they were ready to retire and then decided to sell my Moe and you went on your own to watch actually from the outside how smooth that seemed to be, too, was amazing. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know if if it felt that smooth on the inside, but on the outside, that whole process was like, how does that happen? Well, a bunch of good stuff was built into this. And the first thing was Gordon and Char have spent their whole lives running businesses and they were very successful outside of woodworking. So for them, business stuff is just like what they know. And they, right when I started to work to them, they were like, well, what do you want to do long-term? And I was like, well, I probably want to keep bean sprout going long-term. And they're like, okay, well, we'll just make sure we can build that in. If you ever want to do that. Cool. And they're like, and we'll also build in that if you ever want to take over my MOA, we can do that too. So they just like, we just kind of like had that all available and their knowledge of how to run businesses and how to start them and end them and all those things is really great. But more importantly, their generosity of like choosing to mentor us and set us up for future success. They made a choice to do that. So even when they knew they were going to sell my MOA to somebody else, there still was like an 18 month plan about how to reset up Beansprout and get that going and make sure that I had the tools and wood and machines that were mine or should be mine from that situation earmarked out ahead. So we knew years in advance, like what was going to happen and how it was going to go. And they're just like super generosity. You know, they choose to, they chose to take care of us. Yeah. I think it was right after or shortly after our son, Henry was born in 2014 yep, that's right. that yeah. they came to us and said, okay, we want to be done doing this in 2018. 2018. Oh, I thought it was, well, that, no, okay, it was 2018. 2018. Yep. So uh, on one hand, I was like, ah, <laughs> we had just had a baby, but uh, we also knew that they would, this was not just a thing where we're like, okay, we're, we're out of here figure it out for yourself. Like we knew that they had our best interest in mind and that's why they were telling us. And so we had that amount of time in between to kind of figure out what we were going to do. Um, and Aaron decided, you know, he would want to maybe just do his own thing. And so we had to, we were renting at the time and didn't have a shop or anything. So we knew we had to buy a house with a shop that we could turn into what Aaron needed it to be. So that took some time. And so we were appreciative that they, gave us the notice with plenty of time for us to kind of tool up and revamp our lives and figure out how this was all going to work. Yeah. They're just really smart and really generous. I mean, that's why it worked out. Yeah. And I I remember watching Gordon was making a series on YouTube at the time and he was talking about the whole basic dismantling or, or selling of the company like weekly on a weekly basis. It was really fascinating to watch from the outside. (laughs) And maybe that's just because I have this, weird interest in the subject but nonetheless it was just really very transparent yeah very transparent the lessons that i learned from them 
are sometimes so deeply ingrained, I don't even know it's a thing I learned. Like I still have like internalized tons of stuff from that era of my building and of running businesses. And um, it has been a great starting point for us to develop our own values and our own ideas because we started from a place of success that we knew what we wanted to keep from that, but what we wanted to do to make our own thing possible. Um, and, uh, you know, if I would have started with a company that was, um, you know, leaking at the seams, <laughs> you know, it would have been harder to find success. Yeah. So we still find ourselves sometimes when a situation arises, we say, okay, well, what would Gordon and Char do, you know? And it's like really comforting to draw from all the experience that Aaron had with them. And, and uh, you know, I got to know them as well, of course. Yeah. So. Yeah. We could make a bumper sticker of that. What would Gordon <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. But with all sincerity, part of the reason why I think it probably also works so well is um, you guys project this sense that you're good people, right? Nobody's perfect, but I, I don't think that's, that's an act. I think that's true. And I think Gordon and Shar projected that they were good people. I don't think that was an act. There are people. So good people helping good people just ends up being generally a good situation. Yeah. Even though I'm sure there are tough times too. I mean, there always are, right? In every relationship. So, yeah. yeah. So, um, when does when does the publishing part of your effort begin? Uh, the first book we wrote. Oh, I, we wrote the little ones when we lived in Colorado, but you didn't work on them. I think I helped type up them out at our typewriters. Um, I did typewriter. Okay. You didn't. Yeah. We, okay. So, so I we had three it. little books before we moved, but then when we moved to Oregon in 2011 2012 2012 yeah. 2012 is when we wrote claw hammer ukulele um that was the first big book that we wrote oh look at her she's got it right here there we go <laughs> yeah uh that was 2012 um and uh that was a technique i've been teaching at festivals forever and i had actually gotten on and made youtube videos starting like right when youtube started um, which is actually a thing that like really launched our careers long term is that I started YouTube super early. Now I can't get any traction on YouTube because the world has changed. But back in the day, I had viral ukulele videos. Um, if you go find the videos, it's really they're awesome. like they're so grainy right? and yeah, it's, yeah, <laughs> it's unwatchable. It's like literally it still has a bunch of views. And people still watch. Them. People still watch it. Yeah, yeah. Well, anyway. the content's still good. So yeah, yeah. yeah. you know. Um, so 2012, we wrote that book and we made YouTube videos to go with it. Well, I think that what the impetus for me getting involved in that is we went to Australia in, I believe it was 2012 and Aaron was hired to teach. And then I just came along to perform with him and I was sitting in on his workshop and he handed out the handouts that he had made. And I looked at that and I was like, um, yeah, I really should have, I should have done this for him. Um, I've always liked art and drawing and writing. So uh, I think that was the last time Aaron ever made his own handouts again. And so I had kind of done that for a while. And then when he said he wanted to make a book, I was like, oh, that's fun. I can, I can write it and illustrate it and use my talents and, and put them together. Yeah. 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 And it was good because like I had the content and the energy to get started in Nicole's hand is just the way she writes is beautiful she writes in fonts and the little illustrations in the tab written out by hand i mean it's not a computer generated book so there are people who buy our books just as folk art who don't even play the music they just buy them because they like how they look um and that's because of nicole like 
you know, and then of course, ever since she's been rewriting all my um, handouts so that they look good. And that's part of our brand, right. Yeah. Is having this like handwritten old timey thing in front of you is uh, it's just part of what we do. And it's a part it, and it, it, it goes along with all the other things that we do with the old music and the woodworking and the folk art. And, you know, it just makes sense. It's like a, a handmade thing in a digital age, you know, and let me let me reiterate, they are beautifully created. Um, I mean, and the other thing is, if you think that that means it has to be in paper, it doesn't, because you can also buy the PDFs on their website, which when I edit this video, I'll make sure that the Quite American website appears below where people know that they can buy those. Thanks. So they're gorgeous. They're, and they're, I mean, and people, so people can understand you're actually handwriting music notes. Not yeah. just not just you know print like the whole thing is hand drawn and a, and a work of art. I mean, that's Thank legit. You. Thank you. <laughs> and yeah. every every page that she works on, she has to like design the whole page. So sometimes she'll get like ninety percent done with it and be like, oh, there's no room for this last thing. And so she just goes like this and throws it away. <laughs> Start over. And she starts at the top and just lays it all out again. There's no like cutting and pasting and moving. She just yeah. does it. So. What, that's why we there there can be some friction when I go to edit it for the fourth time and she goes to edit it for the fifth time and I find a mistake and then she has to do the whole page over again. But yeah. you know we want it to be good, we want it to be right. Yeah. And so the process has definitely evolved. I evolved. I remember the first the Claw Hammer book we wrote. I did it while we were on summer vacation with Aaron's family, yeah. and I just had a legal pad behind a white sheet of paper, and that's how I would try to like see the lines and write straight and all that kind of stuff and. We I did for the staff paper. I did like cut and paste down with with tape onto the paper. Now I have a light box that has a template that I made that has line sheets, and I use a computer program to come up with at least the um, the lines of the tab, so that I lay that all out um, on the computer, print out the sheet, and then I handwrite the musical notes and the the words and everything else. Yeah. So it's evolved a little bit, but I also think um, something that's unique as far as music education, our, our background is that we bring that to our books as well. So we're not just writing down music. We're using the influence uh, influences that we've had in oh, yeah. how to teach something, how to be comprehensive, how to. It's all MENC stuff, yeah. like the, the pacing of the books, the spiral curriculum to it, the. Um, using repertoire to teach a technique. Like it's all like, we're still, Dr. Barrett would be proud of us. Yeah. You know, it's like, we're just yeah. doing it like we learned and, and uh, just using repertoire instead of just exercises, you know, I mean, it's, it, that's all in there. We don't even really think about it, you know? Yeah. We just kind of pace the books that way and it's, it's, it's worked pretty well for us. So we kind of have a mini, mini miniature publishing empire, if you can call it that. Uh, and when we were, touring more we sold a lot more books but it's like we don't tour as much but we just sell books and pdfs every day and they go out and people work on the music and they watch the youtube videos and we get little emails about them and it's a good little part of our business um how many books have we done now i think eight or ten eight of or the ten. full size yeah eight or ten yes yeah. that's probably right yeah and there's a lot of youtube resources too for for many of those things Yes. Pretty much right. every page in every book has one or two YouTube videos that go with them. I did want to ask uh, a process question for, for players. 
because you kind of go through the sequence and most people learn how to play chords and they get relatively decent with chords and strumming and some people are happy to just stop there as you well know going to conferences and things like that and conventions but um i have often tried to decipher what's the next step for people and i usually say probably chord melody is a good place for that next step because it gets you playing some tablature while you're still kind of with chords. But what do you think happens after that? Or do you do you just get to like sort of pick and choose? Do you do you think, I mean, do you see like claw hammer and finger style is kind of being the same thing or full tab playing or full out, you know, solo playing as being three different things? Or do they all relate? How do you what how do you look at it for that next step? My answer is an unconventional answer, and I don't think you'll get this from anybody else. I think after someone's got the basics down and they love playing their instrument, the, the ultimate goal is to integrate them into a musical culture. And so the answer is going to be different for everybody. But I want that person who's now got an instrument and knows their basic chords to go out and find what they want and love and what works for their local area and their situation. and dive into that. So if that's playing jazz standards at old folks' homes, if it's playing second row at a bluegrass jam session, if it's playing Hawaiian music, if it's playing pop music off YouTube, if it's playing in a folk band, like I don't care necessarily. I just want them to be integrated because I think the ukulele strum circle as an ultimate goal can be a debilitating and limiting musical experience. If all you ever do is have a binder of songs and the chords and lyrics and you sit in a circle with the same 20 people and sing the same things every week, that can be great for a bunch of people. And some people are perfectly happy, like you said, with that. that. Yeah. So. yeah, but that can be a trap because you're not going out to live a musical life, right? So unfortunately, that's an answer that doesn't give a, a, a one single path because it depends on somebody's path, right? Like. Do they want to play blues? Do they want to sing, play at church? You know, like it's going to have their own thing. Um, so that's, I don't know, that's my two cents on that. I mean, yeah. you teach more beginners than I do. So well, what do you think? Speaking from my own personal experience, like I still mostly a lot of the times just play chords. Yeah. But I've tried to kind of branch out because I don't want to just do that. So for me, it would be more of like, uh, I went to a workshop in when we were teaching in Vancouver, Canada, and I saw um, our friend Daphne teach how to read tablature. And I was like, oh my gosh, this makes sense to me. This is amazing, you know? And uh, so with my uh, ukulele class that I teach for adults, we start with chords, but then we just kind of move into just reading tablature and reading melodies um, on tablature and doing like, learning songs that can be played in rounds and things like that. So for me, I, th I think that comes the tablature and just single note melodies comes first before chord melodies in my mind. Yeah. Um, but, well, but that's also a little bit about you answered my own question, my own way, because in Nicole's musical culture, she was playing, she's playing with two other people who play chords. So when I listen to Nicole sing and play with her friends, what the arrangement needs is somebody to play eight bars of a melody or a four bar lead. Yeah. And so Nicole's like, well, I guess I got to do it. So <laughs> she stops recording and she plays the little lead that's supposed to be there. And then she goes back to doing her chords because she's got other people to play the chords while she does that. So Nicole, in her own way, integrated herself into a musical 
culture, which was we've got this band with these people who sing these songs and we sometimes need a little lead thing. It's not a fancy solo. It's not crazy. I hear her working on the little part. Eight just bars basically time, just the melody. Just the melody for eight yeah. bars or something. Over chords. So that was a, an, um, that was a musical need that needed to be met. Yeah. And you met it. You know, so in my, in, you know, you, you kind of proved my point in a way by. Well done, sir. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, but you might have been in a different musical culture that, that, that needs you to do different things. Yeah. I don't know. Um, yeah. But chord melody, you're right. It is the next step if you're playing by yourself on the couch. Right. Because you get the chords and the melody. Um, if you're playing with other people, you might not need to play chord melody. So if you're playing with other people, you should learn how to play the U bass so you can yeah, always have a bass player. Yeah, bass. <laughs> so with all that, where is Bean Sprout today? What how are things going? Um, I think it, so just so people know what what is the cost of an instrument? Because it's it's not inexpensive. I think okay. it's totally it's the price is fair. It's what what the cost is. But you want to talk a little bit about all that with where Bean Sprout yeah. is? So we relaunched Bean Sprout as our main thing in 2018. Um, and that was just with me and Nicole doing it all by ourselves. And um, we build ukuleles and banjos. You build. Well, I... It, okay. <laughs> uh, build ukuleles and banjos, and I make tenor guitars too. Um, and I do some repair work. Um, we build five to seven things a month. And they're generally custom orders some stock instruments that we sell to people online or at festivals and events. Um, and the average instrument is probably $1,800, $1,900, probably average, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, yeah, give or take. So right now we have uh, about a six month waiting list. So we're taking orders for May right now. Yeah. It's, you know, that's, it is mainly what we do now. Like all the other music stuff and art stuff is, uh, secondary to bean sprout but it's also like kind of integrated into what we do like we really are in a world right now where our musical life and our our building life and our art life are all wrapped up so it's a kind of an interesting place but anyway it's our main source of income i'm out here in the shop all the time pretty too much. much too much um, <laughs> it's a blessing and a curse to have your shop be on the same property as your house yeah. so uh yeah sometimes th there have been times where aaron realizes okay my weekends need to just be weekends <laughs> and I need to do other things other than build. Or, you know, we have to cut off talking about business stuff after a certain time at night and checking emails, business emails. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, it's like we run our own businesses. We have like a ton of different jobs and we don't technically have a, a real job, but we work a hundred hours a week. Right. Like it's just always doing something. Yeah. Um, anyway. Yeah. We build about five to eight instruments a month. They are, um, generally custom orders um, that we get, you know, through the website. You use most, mostly North American woods. Yeah. I use almost all North American woods. Um, the only tropical woods I use are ones that I salvage from places. I do a lot of like scavenging basically. Um, and uh, I mainly just uh, mill and use woods that I either cut the tree myself or my friend cut the tree or I know the source or I scavenge it. So it's really a really a focus on sustainability in forestry. So, and the inspiration for a lot of the models are based on some classic American designs too, right? With your own twist. Yeah, yeah. So like right there, weird to point. <laughs> that is a, a, a ukulele made in Chicago about 1920. That's made 
the company was Lion and Healy and the brand was Washburn. And so that was a, fa a famous ukulele in 1920. And um, all of my ukulele designs, uh, most of my ukulele designs started with that instrument. So the way the sound hole binding works, the way the fretboard works, the headstock, the shapes, the sizes comes from the Washburn. Um, and oh yeah, there's Nicole's tenor. Oops, I can't do this. Yeah, <laughs> and and then I tend to start with historic instruments, and then um, ones that resonate to me through history and culture, and then I you know make them modern and change them in my own ways and whatever. Um, but like the tenor guitar that's over here, that's based off of a regal old regal tenor guitar, and then the banjo ukes and banjos are mainly based off of Lion and Healy instruments from the 1920s that that I've changed and altered over time. Now you also make some like occasional scout ukuleles or other little models that pop up for sale occasionally. Mainly yeah. I see them listed on Facebook. Like this one's available, get it if you want for the next, whoever gets it first. Those pop yeah. up maybe once a month, maybe, maybe once every couple of months. Well, the scout is inspired by the one above Nicole's head. That's a that's from Lion and Healy. It was called the Camp Uke back in the day. And it was a little tiny one like that. Um, and we couldn't call it a camp uke because obviously that was like a trademarked item. So we called it the scout. Um, but yeah, they're just little ones made from the scraps from building the big ones. Um, and so they're little tiny soprano ones with that little circle body. Um, do, oh, we have one right there. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> oh, well, we have a uh, a waiting list. Uh, well, a scout. Yeah, it's called a scout waiting list. But basically, if people are interested in them, uh, they email me. I keep this kind of comprehensive database of who is interested and then when one is available we send the email out to the list first and they have first dibs on whether they want to purchase it or not and then if everyone passes for whatever reason then we then we put it on social media yeah yeah this is how big they are little soprano sized ones so this one is myrtle for the body and porterford cedar for the top and porterford cedar for the neck and then everything else is oak and walnut and it's all just little scraps from the wood shop. This one sounds good. Now, why do you call yours an alto rather than a concert? Oh, um, so when I was at Maya Moe, we had like 18 models. It was just like a lot. And then so starting over on our own, it didn't feel like I knew I could not handle keeping all that going. And like 75% of the instruments we built were tenors. So it was like, obviously that one has to be your most important one. And then below that, we made at Miami, we made a soprano, a super soprano, a 12 fret concert, a 14 fret concert, a pineapple soprano, a pineapple concert, a concert rezzo. So the seven instruments that were small, even though 70% of the models were tenor, right? So I was like, I can't do seven small instruments when hardly anybody wants small instruments so i said i'm going to design one instrument that is smaller than a tenor that could take the place of all the sopranos and concerts that we made at my Moe. so my alto the body and the scale length is like between a soprano and a concert with the idea that it's just like an all-around small instrument and uh also i was smart enough to realize i needed to start a business by having a, a product that no one else made. And the reason no one else made it is because I just thought it up, right? Like people always put comment on social media, Alto is not a thing, that's not real. Or like, I get that all the time. Like people are mad when I say, oh yeah, we've got this Alto. Someone's like, there is no Alto. And I'm like, 
<laughs> here it is <laughs> like and people get angry which is kind of funny but um yeah so we needed to start with something special that was smallish and it actually has become really popular with female musicians um who, who often have smaller hands and um they want a as big a sound as they can get but they need to play a smaller instrument and so i think most of our altos go to women oh never really thought of that oh like think about like the whole um Portland Jan crew, like yeah. all of them play altos. Yeah. Stephanie, Louis, like, you know, yeah. anyway. And I also saw that lately or recently you posted kind of for the first time, all of the, the artists playing bean sprout, you know, including Danielle eat the sandwich and everybody. I thought that was a pretty cool bit of PR because I hadn't seen you guys do that. And I thought yeah. that's pretty yeah. cool. We kind of didn't do that for years. We've always had that tab on our website of bean sprout artists, but um, Aaron's usually run the website and then just over the last year or so or less than a year I've started to kind of take over <laughs> and maybe think of things that he either didn't think of before or just purely didn't time. have any time to do it so I'm like oh we've got all these great artists let's let's showcase them and tell people tell people about them but there's also a good reason philosophically why I didn't lean on the artists when we got started and that was on purpose to, as a contrast to Maya Moe. So at Maya Moe, a lot of people knew about us because Gordon and Char worked their butts off to get famous people to play our instruments. So like that was a huge deal at Maya Moe. Like the list of famous people on the Maya Moe page is bananas. And that was a really fun part of that time in our life, like building for all these fancy people. And I just felt like when we restarted Beansprout, I just wanted to like take that huge world but suck back in and just focus on us and this and just getting the instruments and instruments for normal people so to speak um and so it meant that i haven't done a lot of marketing about our artists because we do have lots of fancy people who play bean sprouts and i just haven't done the marketing on it um because yeah. i was kind of it was kind of a contrast to my moe like not good or bad just this was different you know probably kind of speaks to more of the like blue collar handmade folk art kind of vibe we have of you know it's not fancy yeah we don't do fancy stuff yeah so. we're not perfect and we we're not yeah. fancy <laughs> i've got a buddy who's like giant dave matthews band fan like he has gone to like 60 concerts over the years so if he had any idea i was talking to the the people that are you know making some ukuleles for dave matthews he would lose his mind so yeah when I get a chance to see him, I'll have to tell him that because it's kind of that's kind of a neat side little thing too that maybe people don't know is that that you've actually made what how many two or three for him already? He has four. Four. Uh, yeah. Uh, and that actually just happened like during COVID. Um, those orders came in because they started touring, and then he wrote a new song that needed ukulele again. So you know through a through weird connections, they asked me to make them. Um, and then he's had that song in the set since 2020, like all the time. So it, that the instruments get played every night. Uh, and that's pretty cool. Do you remember what song that is? Yeah. It's called sweet. It's like your friend totally knows it. Like every night yeah. he just gets, start, just plays the ukulele starts out and then the band comes in and it's, it's, you know, it's on YouTube and everything. Oh yeah. And then the, he had to make it. Well, the first I'd sent two to begin with. Okay. Right? So like the way that people like Dave Matthews work is they don't have one of anything because if something if a string breaks or a tuner is wrong, like they have two of everything right so they ordered two and i made a matching set and i mailed them and then this is the kind of 
life you have when you build for people like this. Um, they love the instruments. Dave loved them. The sound guys loved them. The techs loved them. Everybody loved them. The guy who didn't love them was the lighting designer because I used Porterford Cedar for the top, which is like, a, a it's this wood here for the top. You know, it's light colored. And under the fancy lights, it just blows out into a reflective white and it like the lighting designer hated it. So they're like, okay, we love the instruments, but we need you to make some that have tops that are stained. And I was like, what color? And they're like, we don't care. It just it can't be this. And so I made two more with, I took like, those Porterford Cedar tops and stained them. And I was like, I don't know, the stain looks kind of rustic. I'm not so sure. And they're like, nope, we love it. Great. And so like the ones that get played on stage, the tops are stained. And then the two white ones, one's in the bus and one's at his house. Um, so yeah, that's how it worked out. But that's that's the that's the business of working for people like that. Like it, it, the lighting designer needed it different. <laughs> we did it different. Now you've got one model that's on tour, don't you? Like not with him, but I mean just oh. it's one that you created to send out. Where is that one at? I haven't seen it, any updates lately. Yeah, it's the, the the instrument's called the Wayfinder, and it's with Craig and Sarah in um, Honolulu right now, and it's been there for six months. I think. Yeah, they've they had it a while. Have lots of other they, projects going on. They've been using it a ton and shooting all these things with other artists and other friends of theirs. Um, but they're just like so busy, and Craig is making so much awesome photo and video content that like uh, there's a ton of it that he's got on a hard drive, and we haven't seen it. Um, so yeah, the Wayfinder was created just as a a, a long-term project to just mail the instrument all over to different people and let them have it for a while and do what they want with it and add to its mana and then pass it on to the next person and um that's now that project is when did we start that that's before covid right it's probably 2019 about four years four years on that project yeah yeah so it's been quite a bit around the states i think our idea when we get it back from craig and sarah is to take it with us to england next year and then start it off on england and europe for a while uh, and then it'll probably end up going back to Hawaii again too. Someday. I don't know what it's going to just go forever. Like yeah. I, I have no plans to stop it traveling around. <laughs> so it's like, it's in its own case with a, like a guest book, like a passport book in it. And then it's built into a wooden crate that you screw back together and then ship to the next person. So like, it's, you know, ready to keep going forever, I guess. Now I did want to ask you, there's two more things I want to ask, but I want to ask about tone woods and I want to ask about your, um, and obviously you don't have to go into depth about it, but the the Kingdom Era project that you're working on. Um, right. In terms of Tonewood, I this is my one Maya Moe that I've managed to acquire. Mm -hmm. um, I am a teacher, so I do not have a ton of money. So this one showed up for $600 and what? I made it happen because I thought that was a pretty good buy. Can you hold um, that? Yeah. Hold, the, hold the myrtle up, up here. Okay, so that board of dark green myrtle is the same board of myrtle that all my Mayamoes are made out of. Really? We have, we have matching instruments. So I still have my super soprano and my baritone that's the same dark green. And that's the same dark green myrtle that Eddie Vedder's uke is made of. Really? It's, it's the same board. Yeah. And my so only I, thing, well, there's two things I there's two things that I don't like about it. First is I wish they wouldn't have put the person's name in the sound oh, hole. Right. Because you know, I bought it legally and, and fair from the, the people that didn't want it anymore. So forever, I have to look at that person's name in there, which is <laughs> yeah. bad. But the other thing is the Myrtle is, it's it's bright and clear, but it's not really a warm sound. Is that typical of Myrtle? Um, it can be. It's on the brighter side. But I think um, 
you know, over the years, I've been able to get some more richness out of the Myrtle. I mean, Nicole's tenor is all Myrtle. Do you think yours is bright and clear, but not very rich? I don't know. I don't really think about it. You don't ever think about it. You just play it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah I mean, Myrtle definitely has a, is, is on the bright part of the spectrum, but I find it pretty balanced in general. Um, but maybe if it's got something to do with, you know, that particular instrument and how it got carved that day. And maybe because it's a concert, not a tenor. And I don't know, you know I'd have to yeah. get it in my hands. To... It's it's kind of interesting because I've learned to have attitudes towards cedar or spruce. Spruce tends to be too bright for me. So, mm -hmm. you know, the cedar would probably be if I was ever going to order nuclei of my own, I would go towards a cedar of some kind, likely. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, is great too, but but cedar, I like cedar. Yeah, and I'm not sure what the differences are in the cedars either. If you hear like red cedar versus your Port Oxford or whatever, I don't know if you hear those differences. Yeah, I don't I mean, know. I do, but I think also it's like when you're working with a builder, like if there's this entire spectrum of sound that exists in the world, and then there's the spectrum of sound that's assigned to ukulele, and then there's the spectrum of sound that like the builder builds within that, you know, let's say it that much, and then like the different woods you use are only going to make that much of a difference, right? Like my right. bean sprouts that I make now sound a certain way. And whether we use spruce or cedar or redwood or whatever, they all are similar, but it's just a, a sprinkling of flavoring with the different tone woods, I think. Um, and the biggest probably difference is, you know, like the Myrtle one or an all color, all mahogany instrument, it has that traditional sound of all one wood top back and sides. That's like the old way to build an ukulele. That's a that's a very kind of like mid-range strummy strummy sound. But if somebody wants more of everything, I think you do have to have a soft wood top with a hard wood back and sides. So that could be a spruce or cedar or redwood top or whatever. And then, but we use the word cedar to mean lots of different things. And almost none of them are like true forestry cedars. So sorry, forestry nerds, but so like Western red cedar, Alaskan yellow cedar, Port Orford cedar, uh, juniper, cypress. Uh, they're all, all these things are of a family, but they're not actually technically cedars. Sometimes they're actually cypresses. Anyway, of those, yeah, Western red cedar, I think has a darker and richer tone. Port Orford cedar is a little punchier, but it's not as bright as spruce. Um, rule of thumb, you know, Nicole's like, wood. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you like, you know, you like when you like one. You know, yeah. You, you yeah. can hear the difference. Yeah. yeah. I don't think about it as much as you do, obviously. Yeah. Well, I imagine that's every, every ukulele you build. And how often do people tell you what they want? And how often do they just say, make something that looks good and sounds great? Um, over the years, more and more people leave more things up to me, which I appreciate. But I think it goes best when I hear from somebody who has like a tone or a style of music they play or one piece of input. And then they're like, can you just craft around that? So like, if you're like, oh, I play chord melodies in fingerstyle and I really want a dark, rich sound. And, oh, I love how oh, Walnut love looks. Like, and then leaving the rest up to me, I think is the best scenario. Cause then while I'm building, sometimes I'm like, oh yeah, he likes whatever, you know, like having that in my brain, I think there's some magic to that, like building it for what somebody wants. And some of that comes through in the hands. Um, I think it's rare that someone just says, build whatever you want for me though I yeah mean, I usually there's a really happen. no there's a starting point at least like and they usually like to pick like what the wood looks like yeah or you know or people are like i want i love myrtle and 
uh, I want a baritone and I use this tuning and I mainly just strum. Yeah. That's like the kind of input I get a lot. So you get a lot of weird tuning requests or pretty much mm -hmm. standard. We get a few. Um, I think I've come, I've fit a, a niche where because I'm a player and I play a lot of different styles of music and I've um, experienced lots of different instruments that when somebody comes to me with like what sounds like a strange tuning request or a weird stringing request, it doesn't seem that strange to me. So I'm like, oh yeah, I can make that work. We just got to move this gauge over here and switch over to that and then I'll brace it this way and then we're good to go. Um, so I think I've kind of become known as somebody who's not super scared about that stuff. So we get a fair amount of people who, um, when I when we fill out the note card for Nicole to do the final check, I have to write on there like, oh, this one is this. Don't forget it's tuned like that. Because, yeah. you know, we do have, you know, mandolin players who are playing uke and they want a mandolin tuning or banjo people always have their own weird tunings and yeah. Now you also do some kind of fun projects on the side that's all related to you you have this fascination with ukuleles of the past and instruments of the past. So you've been uh like I don't know if people are sending to you or you're buying them um some vintage ukuleles and then repairing them. Yeah. And offering them on eBay after they're repaired, but I think you're studying them as you repair them, if I'm not mistaken, to see how they're built. Mm -hmm. And then that's leading to this giant project that you had as a grant to go to Hawaii and study kingdom era ukuleles. I, I had the chance for my 50th birthday to go with my wife to Honolulu in March. We spent a total of three days there. It was a Costco special you know, flight package. So again, not super wealthy, 50 years old, celebrating out there. And I had the chance to visit both Kamak and Koalo how I was there. Not like, and I was hoping to visit Sean and see his collection, which you actually had a chance to do, but that didn't work out, which is okay. And then Craig Chi was busy with his, he had his ukulele um, getaway or whatever they call that. The, yeah. We've got another one coming up. So he was there doing that. So I couldn't even visit Craig Chi, who I've met um, and he wouldn't remember me either, but if I was going to have anybody teach me, he'd probably be the person I'd call, um, mm. right away, either him or Matt, Matt Dahlberg, either one of those two guys I would call right away just cause I, I really click with their teaching. But do you want to talk about, uh, I mean, obviously the, the Kingdom era project is a series of YouTube videos that you've already made. So anybody really interested in that, but where are you at with that? And then what's the next step, which is coming yeah. up? The foundation of that is um, part of my own woodworking education is I've gone back and I've been studying how to use traditional hand tools. Because like, as we said before, when I started Beansprout, I didn't even own a chisel. Um, so I wanted to learn about, you know, uh, hand tool woodworking of, of the past. And in the 19th century in America and England, for instance, the average homeowner and general person was a, a handier, craftier person, and they had a set of hand tools that did the certain kinds of work around their house and whatever. So I've gone back and relearned how about all the different kinds of saws and planes and chisels and gouges and all that stuff. And as that went, um, I've just been uh, in my free time. I'm just reading books and everything all the time about that. And I started reading this magazine called Mortis and Tenon Magazine, and it's it is a uh, like a really fancy journal style magazine of really high quality about hand tool woodworking and they put out a call for research and they wanted to find new writers and researchers to do a project about hand tool woodworking and how uh, whatever they wanted so i wrote up um a grant proposal that i could go i would go to hawaii and study some original instruments from the 1880s and 90s study 
what materials, tools, and techniques made them, and then come back to my shop and make some instruments in that style. Um, and the goal of that was to kind of follow in the footsteps of the people who made them with the kind of tools they use and do it the same way here. Um, and I don't think you thought your grant would be picked, did you? Not at all. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I don't know. Like in hindsight, now that I think about the people who from Morrison Tenant Magazine, like I have a master's degree in music education. I've written for other publications. Um, I'd use hand tools every day. Like they probably saw us as like, oh yeah, he he's a writer already. Like I, I, I probably checked a few boxes. I just didn't think they would care about ukuleles because usually this magazine is about furniture and blacksmithing and basket making and just all kinds of other hand woodworking stuff. Um, anyway, I got the grant. And so I went to Hawaii and um, I went to the Bishop Museum and studied the instruments in their archives from that time period. And then I went to Sean at Ukulele Friend um, and I studied his collection of original um, instruments from the 1880s and 90s. In general, they were built by these three guys from Madeira. So Madeira was a Portuguese island in the Atlantic. And um, a lot of people came from Madeira to Hawaii in the 1880s to be farm workers. Um, these guys were professional cabinet makers and luthiers, and they came to Hawaii to do farm work. And then they eventually started building again. Anyway, those three gentlemen, their instruments still exist in small numbers. And Sean has those instruments, some of those instruments. So I studied that stuff. And then I came back here and I built, um, I'm now on my third instrument built in that style. Uh, where I'm at with that project is now I got invited to go back to the Ukulele Guild of Hawaii meeting in November. And I'm going to speak up on this project there, bring my instruments to present back to these people in Hawaii. Um, and while I'm there, I have more research lined up um, while I'm there. So, and it's now it's become just like a through line in my regular building where I, I'm studying these older instruments and they're starting to kind of come out in my own, in my own actual work too. So this one is the, of the two instruments that came from Madeira, they had two, one was called the Machette, one was called the Rajao. This one was called the Machette. It's the little one. It looks like a soprano ukulele to you. In Portugal and Madeira, they called this a Machette usually. Um, and then the second instrument they made in the style, which no one has seen now, but you guys on the podcast, is called a Rajao. It's bigger. It's got five strings and it's the size of a tenor ukulele. So in the um, historic photographs, you'll sometimes see someone with a bigger instrument like this. Um, and uh, the Portuguese name was Rajao. Um, and one, one of the names that they were called in Hawaii was a tarot patch fiddle. So in the 1880s and 90s, there were still two different things uh, that they were playing. And then over the years, it kind of, this one kind of went away and the, what we think of as a soprano ukulele became the most popular body size, but the stringing and tuning from four of these strings was adopted on this. That's probably too much information. <laughs> no, no, it's not. I mean, it's it's exactly where I know I'm at. Now, both those have metal strings too, right? Um, well, some of the Portuguese uh, instruments um, of this style do have metal strings, but the ones that were built by the original people in the 1880s and 90s in Hawaii, they're all gut strings. Okay. Um, but uh, as part of the Portuguese diaspora, as these instruments went other places in the world, steel strings did happen. Steel strings were more common. And I've seen um, there's modern people in Madeira and Portugal building instruments like these with steel strings. But uh, examining the original instruments in unrestored condition, that's gut strings. Uh, so I, I'm, I'm sticking with that. 
Now, when I was at the Kamaka factory, they, Fred Kamaka Jr. indicated that his, was it his grandfather was mm -hmm. the one who took the standard ukulele and made it deeper and potentially even wider with a wider waist. Is that Kamaka embellishing itself or do you think that's actually kind of what happened? Um, well, so Kamaka, I believe, starts in 1917. Um, so at that time, there were a bunch of other ukulele factories and builders. The people I've been studying, it's more like 1886 to 1895 to 1900 that I'm really kind of interested in at the moment. Um, so, so there was no factories at that time. These are people one-off building things. Um, but yes, when it comes into factory time, the little soprano size one or like one just like this actually here's a hawaiian instrument from like 1910 so that's like the little soprano you can see it's got a very skinny waist and it is very slim and and thin and so yeah for the kamaka factory he he um stretched this out and made it deeper to get more tone um so their model which they call standard i think right is what we think of as a soprano and um yeah that's the story i've heard too um, and when I look at other ones from the 10, 1910s, early teens, this size and style or waist size is more common. So I think the Kamaka story could be right on the money about that. So the big question, I, and by the way, I had a chance to, when I was there, I even went to the gravesite of Diaz. Oh, cool. Yeah, because it's it's there. It's a little hard to find, but if you look at the Find a Grave website, you can find it and you can find it in, you know, you can actually go and visit is, I don't know if you can find the other two gentlemen's grave sites um, or not. Know. You know, so I have an interest. This is a topic of interest of mine, which is why I asked. But so what if if the smaller traditional original ukuleles weren't, didn't have, I, I get the sense that they didn't have a lot of sustain. Mm -hmm. And and it was kind of not as a full tone what part of that can find its way back into your own building of value oh, or is it yeah. just understanding the master i guess is the question other than the headstock yeah. tape which is pretty cool well here's the main thing when somebody says to me i i've got an old ukulele you should look at this sometimes it's like a 1950s kamaka and i'm like oh yeah that's from the 50s so that's really cool thanks for showing me but like that's not old to me <laughs> But then when somebody says, I've got an old ukulele and they show me a 1920 Kamaka or a 1918 Kumale or a 1915 uh, Nunez, at that time, the instruments sold in Hawaii were all koa. They had no fretboards and they, you're right, it had a very bright and light sound without much sustain and richness. Okay. So like that one I was just holding up, all koa. It doesn't have an applied fretboard. It's just fret sunk into the neck. And they were in the teens, in the early 1910s, those instruments were sold by the thousands to tourists. So they were made quickly and cheaply. And it's a, it is just like a kind of a ricky ticky kind of sound. Okay. But the instruments that came from Portugal to Hawaii were uh, earlier, 1880s and 90s, were very different. They had a much higher build quality because they're built by um professionally trained european luthiers who are not cranking out hundreds at a time for um tourists they're making fine instruments they had a softwood top and a hardwood back and sides they have a applied fretboard they have properly fit tuning pegs they have good string action and they have a better sound 
So the 1880s and 90s instruments were really high level handmade instruments. And then they needed to start cranking them out for tourists and they opened factories and things kind of went a certain way. Um, and then through the, the hard work of people like the Kamakas through the 20s, 30s and 40s, the instruments came back up in quality. Do you see what I'm saying? Yep. So, yep. so um, even to our friends in Hawaii, when they encounter the ones in Sean's collection that are the really old ones, they're blown away because the instruments play and sound so good compared to the cheap factory ones of the teens. No, it makes total sense. Um, so yeah, but the thing is, like Diaz, there's only 12 surviving instruments. Um, and I've seen seven of them. Oh. Um, and Sean has a few that are playable. So it's hard to make this argument to anyone because how could they go touch and play one of Diaz's instruments? Like no one, no one will get to do that. So are you seeing anything in the build that you can then incorporate into your own building and your own style and aesthetic? Yeah. I mean, I've, there's been a few things I've been, I've been doing. Um, I've been uh, interested in the marquetry and, and decoration of them. them. And I've been learning how to do that myself. I also just think that the curves and the shapes are so different that as I work on the Kingdom Arrow ones, and then I go look at my own instruments, my brain kind of can't even look at mine anymore. <laughs> like I get so worked into, cause you just like take it for granted, you know? So a great example is our normal tenor has this shape. You know, this is normally what we do. This is what I've made several hundred of and then the Rajao, you know the kingdom era tenor it's just different the way the curves look and the way that the angles intersect and it's just different and so it's been kind of fun to uh imagine these curves and ideas and what i do a little bit more and nicole i don't want to leave you leave you out of the discussion i felt like we <laughs> you do you get to go and do all the fun stuff stuff in Hawaii too, or do you at some point just go? You go play at the ukuleles in your building. I'm gonna go, I don't know, visit, you know, whatever Waikiki Beach and just go or whatever. Or I'll take Henry and we'll go do this or what. What do you end up doing during that process? We did a little of that, kind of doing our own thing. Where, uh, yeah, there was the day where Aaron was. Uh, with Sean at Ukulele Friday, and we were like, okay, he's just going to be gone the entire day. So we just, uh, what did we do? That? It was Valentine's Day, and Henry really wanted to go to the mall that was, oh, that was connected to the I've never been to thing. a mall. Yeah. Henry never been to a mall. So the best thing to Henry about Hawaii was the mall. Like, yeah. So. Yeah. So. Uh, I mean, we went swimming every day. We went to the beach every day. Yeah. We went somewhere cool to eat every day. Yeah. You know, we saw jungles and ate good food and shaved ice and hike. hiking. Yeah. And, you know. Yeah. But when uh, Aaron's going back by himself in November, just because Henry will be in school again, and um, it's just a little bit easier, but we of course would love to go back as a family too. Yeah. Well, if you guys ever make it out to this Minnesota area, um, we'll have to go to the mall of America and take Henry there. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> that's worth the visit. And it'll be our treat for dinner or something. You let us know if you ever make it out here. Um, and I, I thank you for your time today. Um, I know we went way over what, what you intended, but but with all sincerity, um, just it's fascinating. Your lies are fascinating to me. I just I wish I wish you the best. Um, 
And I, I thank you for all that you do, not only building instruments, but all the educational resources, the teaching that you do, um, all the YouTube stuff that you've done and continue to do for both of you. Um, it really brings a different side to this world of ukulele. And I just appreciate you spending the time with us today. Yeah, thank you. yeah, it was it's good for us to sit and reflect on these things too a little bit and talk about it because normally there is zero reflection because we are just Try to get the next thing done. Get the next thing done and keep living this weird, weird life. Um, unfortunately, as working class people to live these weird lives, you got to keep, keep doing it. Get back out there and make another thing. So, the last thing I should probably ask, just for clarification again, is where can people find all of your resources and things like that? Yeah. So on uh, our our website for music and books and everything is quietamericanmusic.com. That's our band, The Quiet American. And so you can get all the books and CDs there and um, digital versions of the books. And then our musical instruments is called Beansprout. So that's thebeansprout.com. And on there, we also have the books and CDs too, in case somebody wants that. But on that site, besides the instruments, we've got strings and straps and humidifiers and- Case tags. Case tag, swag. We, got, yeah. we will sell you stuff for <laughs> sure, so. All right, thank you again for your time. Appreciate it. Thank you everybody for listening and as always, we'll be back again soon with some more Uke stuff for you. Thank yeah. you for having us. Thanks, Chris. We appreciate it.